Good morning, church. Hey, so the question I have to start off with you this morning is, have you ever had something that you learned in school that you thought, I'll never use it, and it just seems like you're never going to use it? The other day on Facebook, somebody said, still another day I haven't used algebra. And I know for Roxanne over here, <laughs> that doesn't work for the math teachers in you. But, you know, um, I replied to that one. I still use it every day, but it makes sense to me, you know, to do that. And so I, uh, I, I understand that. But the one that gets me, the one that never made any sense to me was sentence diagramming. And I'm going to use a sentence diagram today because in our text this morning is a, ver is a sentence that is five verses long. So what we're going to talk about a little bit and I'm going to check to see whether I'm exactly right with you English teachers, and I know that my wife will say this, but a simple sentence is subject, verb, object, right? The subject does the action, the verb describes the action, and the object receives the action. Um, I know that's super simplistic. It's not exactly the way it is in the real world. But when you have these long run-on sentences that Paul does sometimes in there, it's really important to know what the main, the main verb and the main object are of, of your sentence. And then what are the modifiers? What, are, what is modifying that information? So are we okay so far? We're all ready to go. We're reading this morning from Romans 3, 21 through 31. That's page 1735 in your pew Bibles. All right. Are we waiting? We're ready. I'm waiting. Go ahead and get there. Starts off. But, okay. Start right here. Danny's not here this morning, but I need you to know that but, and Danny would know this, is that but is my favorite thing favorite word in the Bible, because usually what it means is you were thinking one way, but you were wrong. You were going the wrong way down a one-way street, but you need to turn around and get it fixed, and God will fix that for you. So here we are. But now, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For all have sinned, or for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, or God's glory. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus, presented um, could be planned ahead. I actually prefer that. Planned for Jesus. Presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Okay, so in your, in your Bible, you know, they have these things and sometimes not so great readings. One of the things that many of our Bibles will say here is that it's our faith that we do this with. Um, this is not what's going on in this verse, the, the genitive of faith, the faith of Jesus, the faith of Jesus could be objective. In other words, the faith that is directed at Jesus or subjective, which is the faith of 
the person doing it. So Jesus, and the, and the translation here that I like, we're going to start getting into this. I need to go back and do a couple of these, just so you know. But now, this is the way I've done this. Just hold on. I will, I will do that later. But this, this is for, um, by the faithful blood of Jesus, that Jesus sacrificed his blood faithfully. So the covenant that God is keeping here, the covenant with Abraham from Genesis 15 that's going on is literally a covenant that God always planned to deal with the sin of the world through and always planned to supply the sacrifice always plan Jesus. Now, the thing was, is it was said that Israel was going to do that sacrificial servanthood, and they thought that they were going to do that. But what happens when Israel doesn't have the faith to do it, or it doesn't have the purity to do it, doesn't have the holiness to do it? What it, it doesn't mean you scrap the covenant. It means God supplies a faithful, faithful Israelite. Here it is. For God planned Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus faithfully gave his blood as the sacrifice. This sacrifice that God was shows that he was being fair when he held back or with his forbearance did not punish those who sinned in the past times. Like you and your kids, if you've ever had kids where sometimes you punish things and you hold back for the appropriate time to deal with it because right then isn't the right time to deal with it. But sometimes there's this later time where you're going to deal with it or, or perhaps you know that, that a bigger issue is coming or something like that. But, but in your forbearance, you don't snap and punish it at the time. You wait for the appropriate time that God was being just in doing that. Here we go. We're still going. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do at the present time. God this did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. Don't like that. That should be just and justifier. And he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in the name of Jesus. One sentence. Okay, so we're going to go through this. I did a little sentence diagram. The sentence in its simplest form without any modifiers looks like this. The righteousness of God justifies freely all who believe. That's, that is the gospel as pure and simple as it can really be. Jesus is the gospel. If, if you believe in Jesus, he'll get you through. He'll supply the correct beliefs and all that stuff. But here's the modifiers. The righteousness of God, apart from the law, I mean, in other words, the law didn't make God righteous. God was righteous, but the righteousness of God, the righteousness apart from the law, but witnessed to by the law in the, and the prophets. So in our original translation here says that, that made right without keeping the requirements of the law. That's not what's going on. That the, the righteousness of God is not made by the law. It's very important. The law is considered an ancestral document for those in the discussion that Paul has been having for two chapters about people that thought that they had the inside track because they were born in a certain family or something like that. So then the next modifier 
that this righteousness of God was made conspicuous. In other words, it couldn't be avoided. It's very visible. It's conspicuous through the faithfulness and the faithful life of Jesus. Okay? The righteousness of God, apart from the law, but witnessed to by the law, so not it doesn't negate the law. We're going to get to that as the week goes, but this is not really the thing. But apart from the law, witnessed to by the law, and conspicuous through the faithfulness of Jesus. And, or in other words, doing exactly what Philippians 2 is talking about when Jesus is he gives he doesn't think equality with God is something to be held on to but that gives himself freely to do the sacrifice and you pair that with Colossians as well where it says that he is the very image of the invisible God we didn't know what God looked like we couldn't have known what God looked like but but now we have no mistakes right we have Jesus justifies freely Okay, the law or the righteousness of God justifies freely and sees no distinctions. Seeing no distinction, it justifies freely, not seeing distinctions amongst the people that it's justifying because we all come from a spot of need for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, glory or the reign of God or any of those things work in this spot and we don't become God. We cannot supply our own Godhood. We need help. But God supplied Jesus so that when we fell short, he would do this. It justifies freely by grace. Or one alternative reading in this one is that, or to his joy, justifies freely by grace or to God's joy redeems them through or in Jesus Christ. Remember last week when we talked about being in Adam, that Adam was representative of the world and that he sinned and we've all sinned. But so in some ways he was a king or a, a representative. Anyway, he was the first, the predominant, the preeminent one at the time. Anyway, this talks specifically, uh, there's a couple of concepts going on that I need to make sure that we know about, that Jesus Christ is representative and replacement for us in the cross, right? That through Jesus and in Jesus, that through Jesus as our representative and re in Jesus as our replacement. Now, what do I mean representative? He was our representative. This is why all those... Um, genealogies are in are in the gospels that they're literally there to say that Jesus is a descendant of David and and because of David he's also a descendant of Abraham but there's also priestly blood in the line as well so that he's in the priestly line he's in the just line so that in this way he following down through the line from Abraham the seed of Abraham Jesus is the seed of Abraham that the faith that Abraham's bringing but that he's going to be the kingly representative in the way that JFK when he was president of the United States, decided that Russia in no way was going to put, or the Soviet Union in no way, was going to put missiles in Cuba. And so when JFK says, we're going to go down there and blockade that, 
he didn't actually go down there and blockade it, but he, he committed us as our representative. But Jesus is also the priest, so he offers the sacrifice as a representative. We and Jesus is the faithful blood in replacement of us. So the representative and the replacement to his joy redeems apolutrosis. That's the slave market redeems. We've heard the story. Most of us have heard the story that God um, in a slave market goes in and there's all the slaves sitting around and he purchases one and says, okay, you're free, be on your way. But the Jews would not have heard slave market in the same way. If they'd heard redemption, they would know Egypt. Now, there's all sorts of good things going on that are bigger in Egypt than in the slave market metaphor. It's not that the slave market metaphor is wrong. It's that the slave market metaphor is incomplete. So the slave market metaphor doesn't have God purchasing them out, taking them through the desert, rearranging and telling them how their life is actually scheduled as opposed to the way Pharaoh does it, right? So when they're in Egypt, Pharaoh as the son of Ra, or the image of Ra, um, is the one who keeps the schedule and says, this is how your day will be and all that. And, and you can see the actual plagues of Egypt uh, degrading or or removing Pharaoh's ability to control it. like So it was because of Ra that the sun stayed in its path and there was darkness at the right time and day at the right time, but one of the plagues is darkness over the land that Pharaoh has no control. God controls. One of the things Pharaoh did was keep the Nile in its banks and the things, so those barriers in our life, those little lines, those edges, those boundaries that Pharaoh said he did, God unraveled every single one of them. And then when they're out in the desert, gives them Genesis as a way and, and a poem about filling and creation that talks about the shape of life and what it's supposed to be. So that when he redeems them, he takes them out of slavery through the wilderness, gives them a new system or story, and then brings them into an inheritance. That's far more than just a slave market. Oh, be on your way now. You're free. You're not a slave. That is not what's going on. I mean, aside from the fact that there's probably 450,000 of them or something like that, that number is something I heard long ago. But here's the modifier. The righteousness of God justifies freely without distinction, mainly because none of us have anything to offer or bring, by his, for his joy redeeming us in and through Jesus as our representative and replacement. Now, who's, there's more here about Jesus. Here are the modifiers or the parenthetical statements about Jesus in here. Whom God planned and set forth ahead of time. This means that as some Christianity sometimes implies that Jesus um, was, was somebody just sort of walking by it. God said, well, I'm going to use him as to deal with the sins of the world. The reason that's not good is that's actually a medieval view of the whipping boy. Um, do you know that that's the that's the, the story Whipping Boy actually comes from, like you'd have a medieval king like maybe Henry VIII or somebody like that. Anyway, but he was a child. He wasn't king yet, but you couldn't, you couldn't reprimand the king. And so when he, met, he acted up the Whipping Boy, 
got beaten in his place, supposing that he would feel better, better or worse about that. But that's not what that builds, okay? That might, uh, in very few circumstances, that might actually say, okay, so if I act up that guy and I'm going to feel bad about that. But that's not what's going on in here, that Jesus, being God, comes down in a canonic form, empties himself from his godhood, becomes human, and as a faithful Israelite, then completes the covenant from God's point of view as a propitiation. Massive argument about this from the 1940s through the 1970s, whether God, uh, Paul had meant to use the word propitiation or expiation. The difference between those two arguments is an expiation because they didn't want to have an angry God. People didn't like an angry God, but mainly because in anger they see humans sinning, but God doesn't sin when he does this, so his anger is justified and all this stuff. But as, a, as an expiation wipes away the sin so that there was nothing to God, God sent him to wipe it away and it was just wiped away. But propitiation, you propitiate an angry God. Now, here's the thing. God was angry and justifiably so because we had denied his rule and all of this. And Jesus planned in advance. God always planned to deal with the anger that was required by justice for sin. Always planned for he himself to deal with it to propitiate his anger through Jesus's faithful blood, his own faithful blood. Remember, this is the God who supplies. To declare, here's another modifier, not just Jesus Christ, God planned as a propitiation to declare God's righteousness in the remission of sins past and the forbearance of him when he didn't blame people or hold people at the time, but brought that sin forward to the cross to deal with it all at the appropriate time. That this is about God's righteousness or covenant faithfulness to always deal with the sin of the world. In order that God might have declared both just, the judge of the world, and the justifier, the one who declares us free to all who believe in Christ Jesus. Let's read this as I've translated it here for you. The, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, but witnessed to by the law and the prophets, being made conspicuous through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, justifies freely by seeing no distinctions, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, by or to his joy, to God's joy, redeems them in and through Jesus Christ, whom God always planned as, as a propitiation through his faithful blood that both declares his righteousness and the remission of, of sins past and the forbearance, the things we've done, and declares that God is both just and justifier of all who believe in Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, one sentence. Now, one of the things I didn't say this morning is the delta iota kappa words 
diakosune, just of righteousness, justifies. So that word shows up in one form or another seven times in this thing. They're the same word, justify, justifying, righteous, being made righteous. All of that is all diakosune-based words. So while they don't sound the same in English, and we sort of miss that, the justification and righteousness are from different sources, they are not here. So anyway, where are we? We are Jesus. Um, one more little thing, just so you know, whenever Paul's talking about Jesus, he thinks about a very particular person in history, not a random concept, but as D used to say in our Bible study, that, that Jesus was the Christ. So a Christ is a position. The, posis the position is Messiah, priest, king, our representative. One little thing here that, that as we continue the verses, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith, not by obeying the law. After all, it is God. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is there second class citizens in heaven? No, nobody has the right of way. Nobody forces others to do this. Of course, he is both the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. There is only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jew or Gentile. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we faith truly fulfill the law. Okay, one more thing. I love the New Living Bible. I think it reads really fabulously. But there's a word in here in the Greek, exekliste, that, that says, what then should do we have to boast in? Nothing. The door is shut on boasting. It literally is like a slamming of the door that, that if you think you have something, but what about me? I have sinned. So God's sin is super visible. You hear that door slam. No, ridiculous. But what about me? I've had circ I was circumcised on the eighth day and I kept the, the Sabbath all the days of my life and I had all these things. No, there is no boasting. The door is slammed and there is no boast in mankind. There is only the God who supplies. He has written this on our hearts and it is ours to move. Just something else that this is big enough. We'll be in the same text next week to talk about some other concepts within it. But here's the thing. Let's ask a first century Jew about the law to sum them up. Okay, so this is Matthew 22, 20, 22, uh, 20, um, uh, I'm sorry. This is 34 and beyond. But when the Pharisees had heard that he, this is Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert of religious law, tried to trap him with his question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment of the law of Moses? 
Jesus replied, because remember, he is a first century Jew. He is summing up the law and the prophets. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entirety of the law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two statements, these two commandments. Where's the keeping of the Sabbath? I mean, I'm not saying that there's not a keeping of the Sabbath and that keeping the Sabbath holy isn't a bad thing. What I'm saying is, is that when God establishes his word in us, it starts here and then this other stuff will happen. But there's more to go. My time has passed. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I specifically ask that you would be with each of us today as we ponder and think on what Paul is talking and as we recognize the righteousness of God who justifies freely for all who believe. May we be found in that group. May we not be boasting in the things that we've done, but in your work and your name. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.